Greetings, folks, and welcome to The Eclectic Humanist, Season 2, Episode 3. In this episode, I'd like to continue the book-by-book exploration of Lucretius's On the Nature of Things, which I see as probably the greatest ancient Western work of humanism, or at least the greatest one to survive. So we'll move on here with a discussion of Book 2, in which Lucretius describes, in ways that I think are quite prescient of many of the findings of modern science, the behavior of atoms in the void, absent any supernatural interference. I should say as well, now that we're into the new year, that I actually do have at least rough versions of episodes recorded for all six books, so the problem I ran into towards the last few months of last year of not being able to keep up a weekly schedule, which I think actually cost me the majority of people who had been tuning in, doesn't look like it's going to be a problem this time around. Anyways, I hope you enjoy this little exploration. We should probably get on with book two. In this book, Lucretius explains some of the things or explores some of the things that atoms can do if given enough time. His explorations or discussions range from the very, very small, the smallest vibrations or movements of atoms, what we now call Brownian motion, by the way, which he intuited pretty well, all the way up to the possibility or probability of other life existing in this unbounded cosmos. But he's not doing this merely for the sake of exploration, for the sake of knowledge in itself. He is pursuing an argument, an ethical argument, and a deeply humane argument. As I said during the introductory talk, this is a poem of consolation. And maybe now you're getting an idea of what kind of consolation an actual understanding of the way the cosmos works might be able to provide a person who is afraid or even horrified of the imagined possibility of post-mortem torment, that most evil of all doctrines. But in order to offer the consolation that he's trying to offer his friend Memmius, he needs to first give him an adequate understanding of what his actual nature is, not his imagined nature the nature that's been, or the story of nature that's been passed down to him, or imposed upon him by, well, by the priests whom Lucretius quite clearly identifies as enemies of human well-being. But instead, using an appropriate, useful methodology or epistemology, come at an understanding of his own nature, that is to grasp himself as he actually is, not as he's imputed to be, and find both understanding and consolation in that. Or, as he asks from line 52 forward, why doubt that reason alone can quench this terror with its spark, especially since life is one long labor in the dark? And, just as children shudder at everything in black of night, so sometimes things we are afraid of in broad daylight are only bugbears, such as tots dread in a darkened room. And therefore we must scatter this terror of the mind, this gloom, not by the illumination of the sun and his bright rays, but by observing nature's laws and looking on her face. There are some lines I love here. 
The notion of dispelling fear by observing nature's laws and looking on her face, looking at the naked facts as we can encounter them without imposing a narrative, without imposing myths, without imposing any supernatural presuppositions, that this is the way to actually understand ourselves, the cosmos, and our place in it. This is the essence of empirical knowledge. By asking questions, not of what we can imagine, not of what stories we've inherited, but what we can actually verify that this and only this will give us a reliable picture of the world in which we live. And though he says that life is one long labor in the dark, and I think he's probably right about this, because of course the epistemology he's employing here does not allow for an absolute position of certainty. And we are always full of questions. We are always full of doubts. That's part of the human condition. That's part of having a mind. Or perhaps I should more accurately say part of having a brain as complex as the one we have. But in any case, the way Lucretius is proposing to dispel the terror of death is not to hide behind imaginary fictions or wish fulfillment, but simply to look at the facts and take them as they are. That is, to approach the cosmos with humility and with intellectual honesty and with a genuine curiosity. Because, of course, in an infinite cosmos, there is quite literally no end of things to be curious about. And as long as we're on the topic of things about which to be curious, what does Lucretius decide to be curious about? Well, one of the first answers to that question as we move through book two is dust. The dude wants to talk about dust. Why dust? But actually, there's a perfectly sensible answer. The reason he brings up dust is to discuss its motions, the tiny vibrational motions that we actually can observe with our naked eye, even though we can't observe the cause of them, because sometimes when you look very closely at very small things, they seem to just wiggle in ways that don't seem to conform to the general motions of the air in which we find ourselves. They jerk about a bit. And Lucretius posits, and it turns out correctly, that the reason they're doing this is that they're being buffeted by things too small for us to see. That, as he puts it, another reason you should turn your attention to the motes that drift and tumble in the light, such turmoil means that there are secret motions out of sight that lie concealed in matter. For you'll see the motes careen off course and then bounce back again by means of blows unseen, drifting now in this direction, now that on every side. You may be sure this starts with atoms. They are what provide the base of this unrest. For atoms are moving on their own. Then small formations of them nearest them in scale are thrown into agitation by unseen atomic blows. And these strike slightly larger clusters. And on and on it goes. A movement that begins on the atomic level by slight degrees ascends until it is perceptible to our sight so that we can behold the dust motes dancing in the sun. Sun, although the blows that move them 
can't be seen by anyone, and chaos theorists refer to what he just described there as the butterfly effect. That tiny motions, imperceptible motions, have consequences that ripple beyond their immediate context and cause other consequences that cause other consequences that eventually become perceptible. He stops at the level of the wiggling of dust motes. And I think there's a reason why he does this, but in principle, there is no need for him to stop there. And these teeny tiny motions are very, very important. As I said, this is Brownian motion that he's describing. This is also sort of the core of chaos theory, that we're in a complex system impacted always by the tiniest fluctuations in it, in ways that we can't predict and yet that we can observe. And it's from here, from these wiggling dust motes, these minuscule vibrations of individual atoms, that he goes into his argument describing free will, which he also attributes to the small random motions. He calls them a swerve of individual atoms. The fact that they are not 100% predictable, they don't move in perfectly straight lines, which it turns out, by the way, also happens to be true. There is an element of chaos that seems to be woven into the fabric of the cosmos itself. The smaller the scale you look at, the less precise things become, and the more you need to rely on probability. And it is this uncertainty, this instability in the motions of atoms to which Lucretius attributes what he assumes to be the fact of our free will. That is, we are free not because of any supernatural agency, because there is none, but simply because the very concrete physical stuff of the cosmos also contains an element of chaos. Now, let's play with this one a little bit because it's important. The dust and the brain are both affected by these random movements of atoms, aren't they? He's describing the same thing when he describes free will as he does when he's describing Brownian motion, as he does when he's describing the random wiggles of teeny tiny things. Or in other words, he's highlighting the fact that the laws that govern the cosmos outside of us are the same laws that govern the cosmos inside of us. We are not distinct from the cosmos, we are in it and we are of it. And there is no magical boundary at our skin or at our blood-brain barrier or at any other arbitrary place that you want to put one that sets us off as qualitatively distinct from the rest of the universe in which we are, for the time being, lucky enough to be riding a nice little rocky ball around a nice little bright sun in a nice little middle-class neighborhood of a nice little galaxy that is one among a hundred billion. And this consistency of natural laws or natural principles at all scales and at all times is also a necessary consequence of the cosmos as he describes it. Or to put it this way, and we'll take a look now at line 295 and forward, 
The store of matter never was more densely packed together, nor more scarcely scattered, for it does not increase ever, neither does matter perish. So the way atoms move now is just the way they must have moved in ages past, and how they shall move in time to come. And it is no surprise that under the same conditions the same things tend to arise. And all these things thrive and grow and strengthen to the extent that each of them has been allowed by nature's covenant, nor can any power change the universe. There is no place beyond the universe to which matter could go, no place outside the universe from which a new supply of matter could arise to burst inside the sum thereby, changing the whole nature of things and altering the course of its motions. That is, and this too is epistemologically important, the consistency or continuity of the behavior of matter between one place and another place, no matter how far away, is what allows us to know how the universe works. And it's exactly this consistency that has actually allowed us to gauge the age of the observable universe to about 13.8 billion years, to measure the speed at which galaxies are flying apart from each other, to analyze absorption lines in the spectra of stars, and from these know what their atmospheres are made of. And it is also this that definitively and absolutely excludes the possibility of the miraculous, when the miraculous is understood as something supernatural, something transcending nature. There simply is no room for that nonsense here. There can be no rupture of the divine into the human realm, into the cosmos, because there's nothing outside of the cosmos, no place for it to come from. And if there were, he argues this back in book one, if there were anything else, for it to have an effect on the material cosmos, it would have to leave a material trace itself, it would have to be detectable. It's not. And therefore, we need not worry about it, and therein lie the seeds of consolation. But of course, at the same time, Lucretius admits yet again that there are limits to what we can observe with the naked eye, and therefore there are limits to what we conclude. And because he is honest, before he launches into some of his wilder speculations about what atoms might actually look like, much of which he actually does get wrong, he lets us know that he's extrapolating tentatively toward what he can't know. So I'm not going to worry about those particular bits. For example, the notion that some substances are more fluid than others because the atoms of less fluid atoms have little hooks that catch onto each other and slow each other down. He's wrong about that, but what he's right about is that the behavior of a given substance has to do with the nature of the atoms that make it up. And where he presents an image as a possibility. He knows he's presenting it as a possibility. This is not a hill that he's going to die on, because even though his specific conclusions about much of the behavior and nature of atoms are wrong, his epistemology is sound, and his honesty in recognizing the limitations of naked eye observation is admirable. 
we are no longer bound by that same limitation. We have found ways to increase the reach of our senses to perceive more things. And were Lucretius among us now, the dude would love to play with a scanning electron microscope. It would make his frickin' day. And as long as we're on the topics of microscopes and the very small, let's move on to one of the other major ideas that Lucretius develops in Book 2 of On the Nature of Things that I think is really important to questions of human nature and to the behaviors of complex systems generally, and that is the notion of emergence. In the absence of any kind of divine interference, but given the fact that life definitely exists, Lucretius has to attempt an explanation of where life actually comes from. The traditional accounts with which he is familiar attribute the origins of life to one or another god or set of gods, and again it doesn't really matter whether we're speaking in the singular or the plural, because he's written both of those options off as far as the gods are concerned. And he says over and over again, the gods live peaceful, undisturbed by us. He's cagey that way. Except in book two, he's very clear that what the gods are, are the names we put on the forces that move the cosmos. And he's wonderfully playful in the way he goes about that, just as he's launching into his argument for where life actually comes from. Take a look at line 645 or so. Godhead by its nature must enjoy eternal life in utmost peace, removed from us, and far from mortal strife, apart from any suffering, apart from any danger, powerful of itself, not needing us, and both a stranger to our attempts to win it over, and untouched by anger. The earth is not a sentient being. The reason that the earth brings many different things in many different ways to birth into the sunlight is that within the earth there are supplies of many different elements from which these things arise. If someone speaks of Neptune when he means the bounding main, or speaks of Ceres when what he's referring to is grain, if he prefers to speak of wine by the name of Dionysus instead of by its proper term, then it can be no crisis if he calls earth the mother of the gods. That is, as long as he understands the superstitious element is wrong and keeps his mind free from that taint. So while the gods are eternal and not concerned with us and always enjoying eternal life, as he puts it, they also don't exist. That is the only possible conclusion of his argument. The gods are the names. The divine is the name. We hang on the forces of nature. That's his argument here. So if there is a god in Lucretius at all, it is pretty much the god of Spinoza, the god of Einstein, a quick and easy shorthand for the impersonal, unconscious motions of the cosmos. But if the gods are just words, if the divine is just a word, just a metaphor, well then, this actually has a profound impact on our understanding of ourselves in relation to the world, because there is no possibility that this place was made for us. We are not central to the story if there is no story writer. 
or as he has it back towards the beginning of book two, around line 168 or so, certain people ignorant of matter think it is impossible without the gods for nature to increase the crops and alternate the seasons in such convenient accordance with our human reasons. And when they daydream, it's for our sake that the gods arrayed everything in the universe, these men have grossly strayed from reasons straight and narrow in every way. I might not know that such a thing as atoms of matter existed, even so, from the very workings of the skies above, I would be bold and claim a deduction many other examples would uphold, in no way was the universe made by the power of God for our sake when the universe stands so profoundly flawed. I'll clarify that to you later. Meanwhile, I'll explain all things about the motions of the atoms that remain. So, the universe was not created, and it was certainly not created for us. And as for the flaws in the universe, as he says, he gets to that later, so I'm going to hold off discussing those for the time being. In the meantime, I just think it's enough to have before us the fact, or at least the fact of Lucretius's argument, that creation from above is not on the table. And yet life exists, and yet we are here. So how does that happen? And this is where emergence, remember emergence? I brought that up several minutes ago. This is where emergence comes in. Emergence is the exact opposite of divine creation. Divine creation is creation metaphorically from above. Emergence is the arising of phenomena from below. And while divine creation, I think pretty much by definition, has a telos, is teleological, emergence is not. That is, emergence doesn't occur to a purpose. And the function of a given system does not precede the system itself. As, for example, an intent precedes the making of a thing. But I've dropped that word emergence a few times now, and I haven't defined it. It's an important one, so I should probably do that. It's not one that Lucretius uses, but it is a phenomenon that he describes very well. So here's, here's what it means. Emergence is a higher order behavior arising when a system reaches a critical threshold of complexity that is not predictable from the initial components or the initial configurations, if you will, of the system itself. A simple example is fluid dynamics. You can't look at an atom of water, and for Lucretius, water is made of atoms, not of molecules, and deduce from that how a fluid will behave. Fluidity itself is an emergent property, and the particular ways in which given fluids move are not predictable from the individual atoms themselves. Another example of an emergent phenomenon is weather. The reason why weather prediction remains so difficult, even with so many satellites constantly monitoring the ecosystem, is that the atmosphere's behaviors are so complex that we still don't have the computing power to predict them with precision beyond a certain threshold. And one of the reasons for this is that emergence is not 
merely a property of atoms, a property of things. It's a pattern of interaction. And absent the interaction, which you can never intuit from simply looking at the thing, you certainly can't predict the higher order behaviors that will or can emerge from a complex system. So with that being said, I suppose it's reasonable to ask now, what is life anyway, as far as Lucretius is concerned? Well, let's take a look from about line 867 and see what he has to say. Next, we must admit that animals that sense and feel are made of insensible particles. For this, we can appeal to examples that are lying manifest before our eyes, which make this obvious to us rather than otherwise. They take us by the hand and show us that animals arise from things with no sensation at all. For instance, take the birth of living worms from filthy dung piles when the sodden earth festers with unseasonable rains. All things, moreover, transform themselves in the same way, and so rivers of water, leaves, and fertile pasture land turn into herds of beasts and beasts become our flesh. Our flesh, in turn, becomes the feasts that strengthen savage brutes and raptors mighty on the wing. So nature makes all nourishment into some living thing, and fashions all feelings of a creature from this food. The same way she unfurls flames from dry tinder and turns wood to fire. Now, don't you see how much placements of atoms matter in what configurations they are bound up with each other, what kind of motions they impart and take from one another, and then what goads the mind itself and makes the mind perceive conflicting feelings so that it forbids you to believe that that which feels is born from that which does not. You will assert, no doubt, I should consider the case of sticks and stones and dirt. Combined, they don't give rise to living sense, but stay inert. But don't forget, I do not claim the elements that comprise a sensate being must all necessarily give rise in an instant to sensation. It matters a great deal what size the bodies that compose a sensate being are, and then the shape, lastly, their movement, placement, and configuration. Okay, there's a lot in this passage, isn't there? The Notion of configuration comes up a couple of times, and we need to bear that one in mind. The description of life that Lucretius gives here is not of life as an essence, life as a thing, life as something given. The description of life Lucretius gives us is a process. And here, I think he's on pretty solid ground because he doesn't need to appeal to anything outside of the cosmos as he's described it, to account for the most complex things in that cosmos, namely us, as far as we've been able to observe so far. And notice also he doesn't see us as an end point. We take in other things and then are taken in ourselves by subsequent things. So there's no point in Lucretius's argument, no place in the poem at all, where we are a priori special. We're just not. And if we're hung up on that, we need to frickin' get over ourselves. 
But of course, for Lucretius, it's not just life, but other phenomena within life, such as sensation and the mind itself, that are emergent properties of matter. For example, let's take a look at line 937 and forward. And this is a lovely passage. For in the first place, there can be no feeling in the frame of any animal before formation of the same, because its elements are separate and lie a scatter in air, streams, earth, and products of the earth. And since this matter has not yet come together, it cannot get the right combinations of vital rhythms going to set alight the watchfires of the senses that keep in their oversight all living things. Besides, take any creature, if a blow greater than it can withstand strike it, then this will throw all senses, mind and body, in disarray and lay it low, for it shakes the atoms loose from their positions and will block the vital movements utterly, till, jolted by the shock throughout the flesh in every limb, the links of life unlock those knots that bind the spirit to the flesh, so that the soul is cast out, scattered to the winds through every pore and hole. For what else do we think that such a blow is able to do, but strike a thing to pieces and dissolve it through and through? That is, for Lucretius, and this is something he gets into in more detail in Book 4, so I'll hold off the detailed discussion till then, the sense does not precede the organ. Sense, sensation, emerges from particular combinations of matter and there's no mechanism by which it can precede those combinations. And the same is true of the mind, which is also a function of the system. That is, if you hit somebody hard enough, particularly in the head, their mind is not going to be the same as what it used to be. This is a physical thing that can be destroyed. And just as eyes don't exist so that we can see, we see, rather, because we have eyes. We would similarly say the brain doesn't exist so that we can have a mind, but rather the mind emerges is an emergent property of the particular kind of brain that we have. Damage the brain, you damage the mind. With no reason to suppose that if you damage the brain so completely that it stops functioning, all of a sudden the mind is going to ascend to some transcendent eternal hereafter. Because this is also the case with the emergent property of any complex system. If you destroy the system, the property ceases to exist. Or perhaps it might be more accurate to say, where any emergent behavior of a complex system is concerned, the behavior necessarily ends. So yeah, life ends. And if Lucretius's argument is correct, which it almost certainly is, that end is permanent. But that's okay, because life also begins. And another consequence of Lucretius's argument of an infinite cosmos, with matter behaving according to the same rules everywhere, is that if life arose here, and we know that it did, then it probably, in fact, almost certainly, has arisen elsewhere. That is, Lucretius's cosmos is brimming with life, because in Lucretius's cosmos life 
is an emergent property of matter, and matter is what the cosmos is. Or to put it as he puts it, from about line 1052, since empty space is limitless on all sides and the amount of atoms meandering in the measureless universe past count, all flitting about in many different ways, endlessly hurled in restless motion, it is most unlikely that this world, this sky and rondeur of the earth, was made the only one, and all those atoms outside of our world get nothing done especially since this world is the product of nature, the happenstance of the seeds of things colliding into each other by pure chance, in every possible way, no aim in view, at random, blind, till sooner or later certain atoms suddenly combined so that they lay the warp to weave the cloth of mighty things, of earth, of sea, of sky, of all the species of living beings. That's why I say you must admit that there are other cases of congregations of matter that exist in other places, like this one here of ours, the ether ardently embraces. Besides, when matter is available in great supply, where there is space at hand and nothing to be hindered by, things must happen and come to pass, that is a certainty. And if there are so many atoms now no one could count, in all the time life has existed for, the full amount, if the same force and the same nature abide everywhere, to throw together atoms just as they are united here, you must confess that there are other worlds and other races of people and other kinds of animals in other places. And as, over the last several decades, it's been confirmed beyond doubt that in our galaxy alone, planets are common around stars, and Earth-like planets are apparently very common as well, and Earth-like planets within what's called the habitable zone, where liquid water can exist, are also quite common. To continue to pretend that we are in any way unique is a degree of hubris beyond that of any tragic hero. But at the same time, to realize that the dust of which Lucretius speaks being jiggled by the movements of atoms, and the dust of which you and I are composed, is the ashes of exploded stars risen to sentience, is to me at least a source of awe that dwarfs anything I've encountered in a lifetime of reading world mythologies, and a source as well, potentially, not merely of human dignity, which, as I'm speaking, strikes me as rather quaint and parochial, but rather a dignity embracing everything that Lucretius has described. And on that note, which I at least find profoundly optimistic, I think it's probably time to sign off for the day. If you've enjoyed this, I'm glad, and please come back, there will be more, and please share it with your friends. And if you would like to be in touch, I am as always available at eclectic.humanist at gmail.com or eclectichumanist on Facebook or at echumanist on Twitter. Please come back next week when we continue with book three and a slightly more in-depth discussion of the nature of the mind and mortality of the soul and what that actually means. And in the meantime, my fellow mortal clusters of stardust, 
please, as always, be kind to each other.